wife and I, when uh, we first met, we were both really into poetry. And uh, you can see that poet, lyricist coming out in her lyrics. But I knew that I had to make up for what I lacked in my looks, in personality. You know, I just knew that I was batting out of my league. And so uh, the very first date that we had, we were, uh, we actually ended up sitting outside of Greenhouse Cafe in, in Lancaster. Um, and, and we discovered that both of us wrote poetry. And we were kind of nerds about it. We carried our poems with us. And uh, so I thought, man, this is an inn right here, right? Like, oh my gosh, what a coincidence. We both carry our poems together. Match made in heaven. Um, so, so three hours, we spent three hours under this tree outside of Greenhouse Cafe reading poetry together. And I thought I had her at that point. Um, but, but I didn't. It, it took much more than that. Uh, but anyways, I'm, I'm so grateful for my wife and the gifts and talents that the Lord has given her. Um, so grateful to be with all of you this morning as well. Um, if you could open up to Isaiah 57, we'll be in verse 15 for our whole time this morning. And I just wanted to, to share with you um, just a little bit about how the Lord has used Emmanuel Baptist here in Ridgecrest for our church plant already. Um, you know, Bill was talking a little bit about how the elders were praying, and two days later, uh, the director of missions gives him a call and says, hey, we've got this guy who's going to be planting in the Antelope Valley. Would you like to sponsor this church? Well, around, uh, you know, this same time, we're praying and going, Lord, how on earth are we going to even make it in the Antelope Valley? You know, uh, we need other churches, other brothers and sisters in Christ to come alongside us to help sort of hold up our hands to be able to do the work that he's called us to do. And it's so foolish of us to, to be concerned about how the Lord's going to provide, you know, because we see him do it every single time. But we're stuck in, in time, right? And we can't see what's next. And the Lord illuminates our path just enough to make those next steps. And that's what he had done in our life. And so we were kind of looking a little bit further down the road to when we got here going, Lord, what are you going to be doing? And had an opportunity to, to talk with, uh, with Bill and some other men who were uh, a part of the High Desert Baptist Association and just began to see the Lord move through our relationship with Emmanuel Baptist here in Ridgecrest to be able to land here a little, a little more softly and to begin to do the work that God has called us to from day one. And so literally in, in a week and a half, we're going to be doing an outreach VBS called Rock the Block at Raleigh Dutley Park. And um, this is going to sort of be VBS uh, reimagined, where we're not uh, doing it on a church campus, and it's not uh, so much for us and, and our children, although they will be there, but it's specifically um, a tool to go into the neighborhoods and begin to invite the families uh, in those neighborhoods to this VBS. Uh, we're going to have a bounce house, we're going to have a trailer and a sound system, we're going to have a curriculum specifically focused on the gospel and reaching out to people who don't know Christ. And all of that has been made possible by your VBS, in which you took an offering for us and used that money to so, so that we could be able to do this outreach. So it's really cool. The Lord did a VBS here, and I heard did great things. And through the, uh, 
the, the charitable giving of this faith family, we're able to do an outreach VBS in the Antelope Valley. So guys, it means so much to me to be here because Emmanuel Baptist really is a part of our story, a part of our church plan, and we look forward to moving forward uh, shield to shield with you guys. Um, you know, there, there are uh, several people here with me today from uh, our church plan in the Antelope Valley, and it's kind of unfair that I'm just here and I'm the face because the reality is, is that uh, they all are contributing in incredible ways to what the Lord is doing in and through Revive AD. And so I just wanted to ask anybody who is a part of my family on this church planning team, if you're here, if you could just stand up and we could give them a round of applause. Um, that would be awesome. Excited to have uh, both my parents and Julie's parents on our church planting team, and uh, very good friends of ours that we have known for quite some time in the Antelope Valley. It's really neat to see how it's all come together. Um, this morning, I wanted to share with you two components of our church planting strategy that I think best describe our vision for our ministry in Lancaster. The first one's our mission statement, and our mission statement is to glorify God by uh, turning those who are marginalized, irreligious, and outcast into fully mature, reproducing followers of Christ in all nations. That's kind of a mouthful, long sentence, maybe a run-on, I don't know if you're an English teacher, you might be able to tell me, but it really packed three things into our vision, mission, and goal statement that we felt defined our DNA and what we believed we were being called to do. So, so the first aspect of that mission statement is to glorify God. That's our vision. That's what we'll, we want our eyes to be fixed on, that we wouldn't get into uh, issues of self that would draw us away from the things that God has called us to do. And the second part, though, is, is our, is our uh, mission statement. And it says... Uh, to glorify God by turning those who are marginalized, irreligious, and outcast into fully, uh, into fully mature, reproducing followers of Christ. And as you begin to, to pick that apart, what you recognize is that it's not our desire to shuffle the sheep in the body of Christ throughout the Antelope Valley. Hey, there's this really cool new thing going on called Revive AV. Let's go over there and leave the faith family that we've been a part of. That's not our desire. Our desire is to reach those who are far off, that don't have a relationship with Christ, that need to hear the gospel and be given new life through Jesus. And so you look at those three groups of people that we specifically believe were called to reach, the marginalized, the irreligious, and the outcast. Now, our, our mission, as we begin to reach these people, is to turn them into fully mature, reproducing followers of Christ. All right, we don't just want to preach a, a gospel light, uh, you know, seeker-friendly message and, and build up the community of saints around us and go, cool, job done. Let's, let's just sort of sit back and coast and maintain what we have. We recognize that Jesus called us to make disciples. And he said that disciples are people who obey his commandments. And they begin to look more and more like him. As Romans 8 tells us, is, is God foreordained from the beginning of creation that those who followed him would be uh, 
justified, but sanctified and glorified. And so we don't just want to be a part of the justification process, calling people to repent and place their faith in Jesus. But we want to take them from that point and help them to recognize what it means to glorify God in their everyday life. What it means to be a godly father. What it means to be a godly mother. What it means to, to have a relationship with the opposite sex that is biblical and brings glory to God. What it means to be on mission in the workplace and to be shining your light throughout the day. And we believe that uh, it packed in our mission statement are those convictions. Um, the last part of that mission statement, though, that second component there of our, our vision, mission, and goal, is uh, that, that we want to create disciples for Christ that are reproducing. You know, when you look at Ephesians chapter 4, and it talks about the five-fold ministry. It says that those, those five ministries in the church are for the equipping of the saints. All right, so there's this picture of a pastor, an evangelist, a, a teacher, uh, an apostle, a prophet. It, there's this picture of the, the ministers of Christ in the church being those who are supposed to specifically invest in others to equip them for, for further ministry. Specifically, you look at the role of a pastor, right? And we get this term pastor uh, from the shepherding terminology, right? So shepherding flocks. And what's the role of a shepherd? The role of the shepherd is to feed and protect the sheep, right? Why? So they can reproduce. So that they can provide wool, more sheep, meat sometimes, right? The, the whole business of shepherding is focused on growing up sheep that are strong and healthy enough to reproduce more sheep so the business keeps going. And so really God's vision for any church, and specifically for church leadership, is that they would be investing in others in a way that they're growing up to a place of maturity that, so that they could pass on what God has put in their life. And we believe that that is what God has called Revive AB to do. The last part of that mission statement is our goal. It says, to all nations. It comes from Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the Great Commission, where Jesus says, go and make disciples. And then in Greek it says, pantata ethne, in all nations. Okay, And ethne, really the, the essence of that term nation isn't as good for our modern day understanding of what a nation is. Because nowadays we think nation-states, right? We think borders and stuff. But ethne sounds like our English word ethnic, right? So what, what Jesus was saying is go and make disciples of all people groups. And he actually said that before the end comes, all these people groups are going to hear. Now we're not 100% sure if, if a person from every people group is represented at, at this point in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus could come back at any time. But what we do know is is that there are some people groups today that have 0% gospel presence, uh, no churches, they're 0% evangelical, and that there are 6,000 people groups in the world today that are less than 2% evangelical. And so as we hear, go and make disciples, pantata ethne, of all ethnic people groups, we believe that it is important for every church to have a deep conviction that they are to reproduce the gospel in and through the local church, both uh, in their town, regionally, nationally, and throughout the world. 
And we're not naive to think that, that that means that we would be in every people group in 10 years, but we want to be sensitive to the fact that there are people groups that have no believers currently, and we want to specifically target them as we continue to grow and we continue to talk about what it means to be on mission in our everyday lives. We want to pool our resources and our energy into the least reached places locally, regionally, nationally, and globally. And so that's our mission statement. It really encompasses what we're all about. But the second thing that I wanted to focus on tonight, uh, tonight, this morning, I did college ministry for a really long time, and every service was at night. So I said, I say tonight, no matter what time it is. So bear with me. But the second thing I wanted to talk with you guys about this morning is our church's name. And as Bill and myself had mentioned earlier, we have decided to call ourselves Revive AV. And I really wrestled with this for a while. I, I didn't want to name our church until our core team was together in the Antelope Valley. But circumstances just kind of led us to needing to name the church earlier so that we could announce it at our church. We could announce it with other sponsoring churches. And uh, Revive AV really became something that was laid on my heart in particular because of the college ministry that I was leading as the young adult pastor in Bakersfield. Uh, where the Lord really started with a group of six non-committed believers that I personally don't think wanted me to be there. And over the period of two and a half years, um, that multiplied into 40 uh, strong, committed, reproducing followers of Christ in Bakersfield. And it was incredible to see because so many of these people were the marginalized, were the irreligious, were the outcasts. And the Lord was saying, I get glory through using those people. In my scripture that I've given you, aren't those oftentimes the people that I was around, that I was reaching? And that made an impression on my life, made an impression on my wife's life, and revived as a church name, just kept coming up in our hearts, coming up in our minds. And as I was thinking about a verse that encapsulated uh, what Revive AV is really about and why we are calling it Revive AV, I came to Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. And if you're not there already, I'd encourage you to go there and uh, we'll read it together and then we'll pray about our time. Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. Isaiah the prophet is speaking and he says, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for this time. Thank you for this church. Lord, I thank you for this word that we have in Isaiah 57, verse 15 this morning, about who you are, about your role and heart for the world, and about the conditions that you have placed on the way that you interact with humanity. God, as we dig into this word, I pray that you would give us soft hearts, that you would give us listening ears and eyes that can see. That you would correct the vision of our hearts and help.
Help us to see you more clearly through this word this morning. God, if there's anybody within the sound of this voice that does not know you or is far from you, I pray that this morning would be theirs and that they would not leave this place without getting right with you. We give you this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, by a show of hands, um, I'd like to see, is there anybody here that has been to the optometrist in the last week? Been to the optometrist in the last week? Okay, that's my bivocational job, so I'll give you my card after the service. <laughs> Um, I have horrible vision. If I take out my contacts and my wife is standing five feet away, although she's very beautiful in reality, she looks like a nebulous blob. Okay? Um, I have my glasses next to my bed in case there's an emergency in the middle of, middle of the night. First thing I do is I put my contacts in in the morning. Uh, my left eye is nearly blind. My right eye is trying very hard to catch up. And so I go to the optometrist at least once every two years, uh, sometimes once every year. And if you've been to the optometrist lately, you'll remember that thing that they bring towards the end of your time there. It's like this big metal binocular type thing. And, and it sort of like comes down out of the air and it goes right in front of your face, right? Um, you can see it there on the screen. That's called a ferropeter, all right? Um, layman's terms, it's a refractor, okay? So those, those two that go right in front of your eyes, basically they just, uh, they, they have lenses that drop down, and that, that's what they use. They say, which looks better, one or two, two or three, three or four, right? And uh, they get it just right. Then there's a, a second part. And that's the cylinder, and those are those two on each side that are kind of offset from where the eyes are at. And that's specifically for an astigmatism, okay? So the first is going to correct your blurred vision that just simply comes from having a misshaped eyeball, lens, stuff like that. But the second part that drops down, the cylinder, that's to correct an astigmatism, all right? An astigmatism typically is a misshaped cornea. Should look like a baseball, looks more like a, an oval. Okay, if you have an astigmatism. And so they drop that down to help correct the vision. Now, why do I share all that with you? I share all that with you because I, I think that uh, spiritually, the Bible tells us that the eyes of our heart need a corrected vision. And that the Word of God is kind of like the ferometer, giving us our prescription, saying this is how you see God incorrectly. Here's who God really is. This is how you see yourself incorrectly. This is what's really going on in your life. This is who God made you to be. And because of sin and rebellion and your own wayward choices, there's a distortion in your life. There's brokenness. There's a separation between you and God. And so it gives us sight to be able to go, man, I need to, I need to turn from that reality. Place my faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible says very clearly that unbelievers have terrible vision. They're like my left eye. They're basically blind. Okay? And so it, it makes a lot of sense that there are so many uh, philosophies about who God is. Philosophies about man and human nature. Because we're blind. We're just stumbling through the darkness trying to figure it all out. A lot of us here go, yeah, 
amen that that's not my life anymore. But I'd say hold on. Because scripture also declares that Christians can have the tendency and ability to have blurred vision as well. They're like me. They get their prescription changed. They get their eyesight given to them. But through the years, that blurred vision begins to come back. Because we still have a sinful nature until we go to be with Christ in glory. The dead man still comes around with us, although at our spiritual core we've been revived and been given new life. All right? And so, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, we get, we get this picture of a poorly seeing unbeliever. The Apostle Paul says, The God of this world has blinded the eyes of unbelievers. So the God of this world, Satan, there's spiritual evil in this world, and it contributes to the lack of sight in unbelievers' hearts. But in Galatians 3.1, the Apostle Paul has been talking with believers, and he's already called them foolish Galatians. And he says, who has bewitched you? Paul's really upset. He doesn't even do his typical introduction that he does in most of his epistles. He just goes from praise to God to straight to what is up with you guys. Because this gospel that they had believed in, that had changed their life, is now running into doubt in their hearts because of false teachers. And he says to them, it was set before your eyes that Jesus was crucified. He's going, your eyes saw, the spiritual eyes of your heart saw Jesus crucified as I preached it, and it brought you into new life. You were forgiven. And now you're going back to the, these old ways of thinking. And so we see even Christians can have a vision problem in the eyes of their heart. For us, we believe that Isaiah 57, verse 15, is the prescription that God has for our ministry. The prescription that we need to constantly bring before the eyes of our heart to ensure that we're seeing our ministry clearly, to ensure that we're seeing our mission clearly, to ensure that we're seeing our roles and leadership clearly. And I believe that it extends beyond Revive AV. I believe that this is a prescription that the whole church needs. So what I'd like to do with us this morning is I'd like to look at three lenses that Isaiah 57 verse 15 give us as Christians in order to correct our vision. So the first lens, first lens that I believe God wants to drop down in front of us from this verse this morning the glory of God. Look at the first five lines of this prophecy. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. This is big language. This is language that like, if somebody got up on a stage and called themselves the one who's high and lifted up, Go, this person's crazy. Because right? it's lofty language. It's language that doesn't belong on our lips unless we're crazy. You think about the one. He's saying that he is 100% unique and different, transcendent, and all-powerful. There's no one like him. Who's high and lifted up. You think about getting on that stage and saying that. God is saying that heaven is his throne and earth 
is his footstool. This is far above stage talk here when he says that he's high and lifted up. Think about that imagery. Heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool. It's almost kind of like offensive, right? So here I am in heaven and I'm going to take my ottoman, which is you, and I'm going to take my shoes off and I'm going to put my feet it's comparative imagery, isn't it? To say, I'm the one, you're the many. I'm high and lifted up, you're down there. And he says, I inhabit eternity. More comparative language. We're stuck in time. This is like mind-blowing information right here. He inhabits eternity. He has no beginning and no end. He's outside of time, yet fully aware of what's going on at this exact moment. He knows everything from the past, everything from the future. He has ordained a plan from the beginning that will not be stopped and will not be thwarted, but he is also working continually in each of our individual lives in order to fulfill it in time. And as we come before this verse who says that God inhabits eternity. I can't help but go, how can something not have a beginning? But we also know that nothing would exist if there wasn't a transcendent one that in and of himself was life. A self-existent being that brought dependent objects into existence. Philosophically, logically, it doesn't make sense to just have an infinite regress of things causing other things to come into existence. The most logically consistent understanding of how the universe came into existence is if there was a self-existent, eternal God who brought everything into being. But as we think about that, it just goes far beyond our understanding, far beyond our own ability to, to even grasp. And that's the point of Isaiah's text here in 57, verse 15. This is the God that's speaking, and we should be a little freaked out by the fact that he's outside of time. We should be a little freaked out that he has no beginning and no end. We should be a little freaked out that in the comparative language he is completely and utterly different from anything that we have experienced in the material world. He says, whose name is holy. I love this word holy in Hebrew language because it points towards this idea of otherness. He's just completely different than humanity. He's other in his morality. He's other in his righteousness. He's other in his perfection. It's just so different than the best person on earth. So different than the most righteous man that has ever lived. He's holy. No one's like him. You get a picture of this holiness in Revelation chapter 1 through 5 as this scene unfolds in heaven and first John sees Jesus, 
and he's in his resurrected form, and his eyes have fire in them, and his hair is like steely wool, and coming out of his mouth is only truth, this, the sword of the, which, which is the word of God. And he's got this glistening white robe and these legs like bronze. And then as, as John sees this, he falls down like, like someone who's dead. Because he just recognizes this is the holy God of the universe. He's completely other, completely different. I am unrighteous. He is righteous. I am unholy. He is holy. And then even in heaven, these perfect beings that haven't sinned, these weird angelic creatures are there singing praise to God. The 24 elders with their crowns on come around the throne of God and the Apostle John sees them throwing down their crowns saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The one who inhabits eternity whose name is holy. We want to make sure as a church plant, and I believe God wants you to make sure as an individual, as a church, that your eyes are fixed on God's glory in all that you do. That every day you're bringing this lens before the eyes of your heart and going, the one who deserves praise, the one who deserves to be served, the one who has the right plan for my life, the one who has the right system of morality. The one who understands my life before it unfolds. He's the one I need to serve today. Secondly, the second lens, the involvement of God in human affairs. Look at the rest of the verse. Right after he says he dwells in a high and holy place, he says, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Scripture does not give us some deistic God that stood before time and space and wound up the universe like a clock and threw it into existence said, okay, now I'll watch what takes place and what happens. A distant God. Benjamin Franklin's God. That's not the God of the Scripture. That's not the God of the universe. That's not the God of reality. He comes here and says that he is intimately involved with the affairs of humanity. That he will actually dwell with people on earth. That God will make his dwelling place with people. And that's what he did with Israel. And that's what he's done with his church. In Israel, he dwelt in the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and eventually in the temples that were built in the future. And there came a point in which Jesus came upon this earth, lived the life you and I couldn't live, died the death that we deserve, conquered the enemy that we couldn't conquer, death and Satan himself, became our substitute so that anybody who turned from their sin and placed their faith in Jesus Christ as the ransom payment for, for their sin would be forgiven, cleansed of all unrighteousness, and God's Holy Spirit would dwell in their hearts. God actually says, I am so concerned with humanity, their affairs, and their spiritual state, 
that I will actually come and dwell with him. It just drops a bomb in deistic thinking. God cares about his creation. Why would God create such a relational people and be so relationally distant? Doesn't the creation reflect the mind of the creator? Doesn't it reflect something about the intelligence, the emotional state, the desires? And you look at humanity, we can't live without each other. We can't live without love. We can't live without parents who take care of us for 18 plus years of our lives. God created such a relational people as the pinnacle of his creation here on earth. The Bible actually says that we were made in his image. That image has been marred because of our choices, because of our sin, because of our rebellion. And God goes, I care about that. I am going to affect change in that reality. Number three, the third lens I think we're given here in Isaiah 57 verse 15. The conditional nature of God's involvement with individual people. The conditional nature of God's involvement with individual people. You know, a lot of us, we like to hone in on that that second point. God loves you. God has a plan for your life. You know, whatever your truth is, that's fine. This is my truth. But we can tolerate each other. We can respect one another. Truth is relative, really. God just loves. So we all hold hands around the campfire and sing Kumbaya. God says, that's not me. Not some nebulous love spirit. There's more truth to God than touchy-feely love. In fact, God isn't touchy-feely love God is love. He's the deepest form of love. And his word says that he disciplines those that he loves. And that he has a system of morality that governs the universe and that it's good. It's not arbitrary. God's not just some guy in the sky with a long beard and thunderbolts saying, I don't like that. That doesn't make me happy. You're not pleasing me. There are reasons for his morality. Those reasons stem from what is inherently good, which flows from the Father's heart, flows from the Father's mind. Goodness and truth and love and morality, all righteousness and holiness flows from the heart of God and he desires it to be ours. He desires it to be those that he has created in their hearts. The problem is is that it's not. As God looked upon the entire earth, all people, there came a point in which he looked and he said, there is not one that is good. And Paul reiterates this and extends it to all humanity in all time. Apart from God, he says that there is not one who is good. No, not one. All have have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so there's a deep, serious, spiritual problem in our lives without Christ. 
God's intention is that all of humanity would have been in intimate connection with him. Like holding hands side by side. But sin ends up stacking up between our hands and God. And all we're holding is our sin. All we're holding is our depravity. We don't wake up and go, yeah, there's God right there. I believe in God. Atheists exist because sin has separated this world from God's world. And so God says, yeah, I love this world that I've created. Excuse me. But the reality is, is that this world is at war with all that I'm about. True morality, true righteousness. This world doesn't even know it. And in my holiness, in my perfection, I can't dwell with it. But I love you. I care about you. I want to dwell with you. And as we look at these terms that he gives for those who he's willing to dwell with, those who he's willing to revive, we see the conditional nature of his involvement with humanity. The word contrite means like very much crushed, broken small, like dust. And the first thought and vision that we get of this is like, okay, it it must be someone that's just in a really bad place. And you go, yeah, God is totally about helping people in a really bad place. Jesus actually said, I came not for the righteous, but for the sinner. The sinner needs a doctor, and I'm the doctor for the sinner. So yeah, that's true. God is all about reaching people in bad places. But there's a deeper layer to this word contrite here, and it has to do with our heart. Because you look at the next word, and it says, lowly. That he revives the spirit of the lowly. And in Psalm 138 uh, verse 6. We're told that God regards the lowly. But the haughty he knows from afar. So we get this picture of lowliness and haughtiness. Okay. Pride and humility. And we see in other verses where God reveals that he resists the proud. But gives grace to the humble. And so having a contrite heart, having a lowly spirit is so much about the way we see ourselves and the way we're willing to respond to God. There is great pride and arrogance in the human heart. And God is showing us right here that he will be with people, but on a condition where they come and they humble themselves and they admit that they're not the answer. They humble themselves and they admit that the ivory tower of intellectualism that they've built and called their own religion and their own God is only paper thin in the end and will fail them. So he says, I want to help, but are you willing to come to me in that way? And as a church, it's so important to recognize this because we will chase after leaves in the wind to the end of the day if we don't recognize that there is a conditional nature to God's involvement with humanity. And that there are people that God is bringing to himself in a way where they are getting to a point where they say, you know, I realize I need to turn from this and walk with Jesus. 
And if we come with some nebulous, touchy-feely love message that doesn't help people to recognize their state before God and their need for a Savior, then a lot of times what we'll have is people in a room that are still the same sons and daughters of hell that they were two years ago. God has a plan. God has a purpose. He has a mission. But that mission is defined in his word. And we need to be careful of helping people to see that his mission is about bringing us back into relationship with him. Helping us to repent of the person that we were to place our faith in the person who can transform us into the image of God. In a world that centers on self-promotion and, and arrogance, self-interest, where we're, we're promoting ourselves on Facebook and Twitter and all these other social media outs, outlets all the time. And, you know, we've, we've got American Idol and we've got People Magazine and just all these things that are people-centered. It's really easy to have poor vision about this stuff, guys. It's really easy to have a, a Bible message, a gospel message that is man-centered and not God-centered. It's really easy to let our motivations seem good, but as we look at God's word and we allow that prescription to come on our heart, we go, man, I don't know if I'm really living for God's glory. I don't know if I'm really seeing that God is intimately involved with the affairs of humanity and that he's calling us as a church to do something about it in a very biblical way. And as I go back to our example of the optometrist after, you know, the the doctor comes in and you know, uh, brings down the ferropeter and he's changing the prescription and getting it just right. He brings down that, that third lens to adjust the astigmatism. He asks one more question. And he says, okay, can you read that line? He's doing a vision check. Okay, I think we've got it right. We've brought it down in front. Now, can you read that? And guys, I think that serves as the grand analogy for what God is asking us this morning. He's dropped the three lenses down. His glory being our vision. God's intimate involvement with the affairs of humanity. His conditional, his conditions for the way he will involve himself with the affairs of humanity. And now we bring it before the eyes of our heart. And we ask can we see clearly? Is our vision truly, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do it all for the glory of God? Is our vision truly in line with God's mission for the world? In Mark 8, Jesus is talking with his disciples and he he uh, had just fed the 4,000 and he's in the boat with them. And he says, um, he says, hey, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. And they start talking with each other and they're like, were we supposed to bring bread? What's he talking about? And, and yeast was this terminology in scripture for something bad that was rising up in a, in a person's heart for sin. 
pervasive sin, pervasive misbelieving and misacting in regards to God and his purposes. He says, hey, beware of them. That can really infect your own heart. But they don't get it. They're like, what's he talking about? And he goes, are you still so slow to see? Still so slow to see. In that same chapter, Jesus comes before this man who doesn't have sight. And this man cries out, Jesus, would you heal my eyes? Jesus comes over and he touches the man and the man gets sight. And he, Jesus talks with him and the man says, I can see now, but everybody looks like trees. And Jesus lays his hands on him again and heals him so that everybody doesn't look like trees. What's that about? Jesus' power wasn't strong enough the first time. Jesus had healed other people's vision before like that. So what's going on here? Jesus is demonstrating something to his disciples and to us. And that is that sometimes we can get touched once to go from being blind to having sight. But we need to be touched again so that we can see clearly. This is the problem that I think that we as a Western church face. Is we think that believing sight means 2020 vision. It just doesn't. God's word is filled with the prescription to give us proper sight. And we will not have proper sight unless every day we come before this word again and again and go, I have the tendency to to lose my prescription. I have a tendency to have blurred vision more and more as the years go on. God, I take this prescription and I apply it to the eyes of my heart here this morning. People say all the time, oh, I know God's word. I know that it says that. Groovy, cool, good for you. Are you wearing it on the eyes of your heart? I know God's word, so I don't read it as much. I've just got it tucked away in my heart. That's awesome. But are you applying it to the eyes of your heart? And the reality is, is you could know all the word in the world, but if you're not coming before it like this, not above it, but below it, saying, Lord, I know that I have a tendency to stray. And you take time in his word. To apply it to the eyes of your heart. He's going to correct your vision. He's going to give you the ability to glorify him. And to affect the world for his kingdom. I want to close with three application steps for our message. Number one, go to the doctor. Go to the doctor. Jesus said that he's like a doctor coming to our sickness to heal it. You know, one of the problems is, though, we just don't go. We start off our relationship with Jesus and we're so excited and we spend time with him. And then we let the affairs of this world, the cares of this world, the worries and the responsibilities of this world begin to choke out our relationship with him. Go back to him. Number two, get your vision checked. Get your vision checked. God's word isn't just worth knowing. It's worth applying. It's worth correcting. Come before his word each day. 
and let it begin to correct the vision of your heart. Number three, compare the way you see the world to the way God speaks about it in Isaiah 57, verse 15. I know I've gone over here, and I apologize for this. But guys, I think this is so important. Come in real close. Don't let the numbness of your behind numb your brain here. Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The last words of Jesus Christ before he goes back to be with the Father. Last words are kind of important, right? We write down people's last words before they die. We talk about them. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The verb in that beginning statement, go and make disciples of all nations, is make. It's in the imperative. That means it's a command to his disciples. He's commanding them. The two participles that connect to that verb are go and baptize. So he's saying, I'm commanding you to make disciples in all nations. And the way you'll do it is you're going to go and you're going to preach the gospel. And as they respond, you'll baptize them into the kingdom of God. You go, okay, well, that's apostle work. That's pastor work. That's evangelist work. He was talking to leaders, Jeff. The very end, he says, teaching them to observe what? All that I've commanded you. Make is in the imperative. It's a command. Every single follower of Christ has been commanded to go and make disciples of all nations. Every single one. And so when we bring this this lens of God's mission before our heart, We've got to ask ourselves, what does that look like for my life, God? What does that look like in the workplace? What does that look like with my finances? What does that look like with my family? And am I doing that? Is my life and my resources being leveraged for God's mission? My concern is that many Christians in the West will come before God on either the day that they pass or specifically the day of judgment and they'll recognize that they didn't live fully for Christ and His mission. My concern is that many Christians will come before God and God will say to them, Be gone from me. I never knew you. You were never really mine. Because we've been a people of false professions of faith. And we've been a people of easy believism. And we've been a people who have been inundated with western sensibility and materialism. And we were not those virgins who kept our lamps lit. 
he who perseveres till the end will be saved. Sure, we're saved through faith in Christ. But the proof of that faith is our perseverance to the end. And if we take these two lenses and we put them before our heart and we begin to see, oh my gosh, God, I am not living sold out for your glory and I am not leveraging my life for your mission. There must be a heart vision problem. There must be a heart problem. Maybe my heart's not even changed because I'm not compelled to this life. Guys, if that's you this morning, Let's come before the Lord in prayer right now and let's begin to ask him to effect change in our hearts. Either maybe some of us this morning as we bow our heads and and we close our eyes, maybe some of us are going, gosh, God, what's happened with my relationship with you? I'm not living for your glory. My life's not leveraged for your mission. Lord, I'm just far off. Help me to come back. That's his his heart today is to come to a contrite and lowly person who's humbling themselves and just revive their hearts so that they might be able to serve him and and fulfill his purpose for their life. But maybe some of you are here and you go, well, gosh, I, I just thought I prayed a prayer and then everything was good. But the reality is, is that a good tree bears good fruit and you're looking at the fruit of your life and you're going, maybe I'm not really walking with Jesus. You need Jesus to enable that to happen. You can't muster up service to God. He needs to come into your heart this morning. And so if you're either of those groups, just you feel far off from the Lord in your relationship and you want to get back to a place where you're revived and serving him, or, or maybe secondly, you don't know the Lord and you're recognizing that today. You recognize your need to turn from your sin and place your faith in him. If that's you, just come before the Lord with a contrite, lowly, humble heart and pray with me this morning. God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. And God, we just ask for those who are your kids and are afar off, you would help them this morning to get back to a place where they're sold out for you and your kingdom. They're living in joyous relationship with you according to your word and your purposes. God, for those who are not in relationship with you, I pray for them that right now they would see their need for you and turn from their sin and their self, place their faith in you, God, knowing that when they do, you will forgive them, you will cleanse them of all unrighteousness, and you will give them new life. But Lord, help them to know that it's a daily battle of coming before you and your word and subjecting ourselves to your truths so that we might see clearly each day. We love you, Lord, and we give you this time. In Jesus' name, amen.